Well, good morning, and open those Bibles that you brought. Hopefully, you brought them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now let's, let's play a little word association here. When you hear the word kingdom, what immediately comes to mind? Just think of words that would come to your mind when you hear the word kingdom. Maybe words like power, authority, um, sovereignty. If you think in ancient, ancient terms, you might think of kings, queens, knights, swords, castles. That's a kingdom. Probably of all the words that bounced around in your brain, meekness wasn't one of them. When we think of a kingdom, we think more of force rather than we think of gentleness, meekness. A few years back, in fact, it was right after the first Gulf War, I had an opportunity to go to Iraq. And I went into Baghdad with six semi-truck loads of presents, 32,000 shoebox presents to give to the children in Baghdad. And it was a very disarming gesture. In fact, the Iraqis even loved it. They couldn't believe that Americans that they thought hated them were loving them with gifts. But I'll never forget walking in downtown Baghdad where there were two large iron fists holding swords, these monuments towering over a hundred feet in the air. The sword, the iron fist, they were called the hands of victory. Now that's a kingdom we think of. That's power. That's autocratic might. You may have heard about the lion, the king of the jungle, wanted to make sure that all the rest of the animal kingdom knew he was the king. And so he went to them individually, first to the bear. He said, who's the king of the jungle? And the bear said, why, you are the king of the jungle, O mighty lion. Right on, said the lion, as he roared in approval. Next, the lion found the tiger and asked the question, who is the king of the jungle? Well, you are the king. Everybody recognizes that. You're the mighty, awesome lion. Okay, said the lion. Got that straight. Next, he found the elephant. And the lion said, Who's the king of the jungle? The elephant looked at him. Immediately took his trunk, wrapped it around the lion, tossed the lion up five or six times in the air, slammed him against the trunk of a tree, pounded him onto the ground three or four times, dunked him in water, tossed him back up on the shore. The lion, battered and bruised, got up, walking barely, looking through his bloodshot eyes at the elephant and said, look, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean you have to get so mean about it. <laughs> that's power. That's might. That's authority. But meekness, where does that fit in? In fact... When Jesus' audience was gathered around him on the day he preached the sermon, in their minds, they expected that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be anything but meek. He'll be so powerful. He'll be so mighty. 
Now, I know we've read the Beatitudes or we've heard sermons on them, and we think of it in terms of Americans having heard the Beatitudes all of our lives. But let's go back and just frame this in its historical context. You know that Israel had been oppressed by nation after nation. That was their legacy, wasn't it? Let's see, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and at present, the Romans. They all occupied that land and made the Jews slaves of them. They were used to power, kingdoms, and authority. There were groups of people among the Jews. One of those groups was the Pharisees. We've heard of them. If you were to have interviewed a Pharisee and asked him about the Messiah, you know what he would have told you? He would have said, I know the Messiah is coming. And the Messiah that is coming will be a powerful military leader. He will overthrow the Roman yoke. He will wipe out our oppressors. He will establish again a theocratic kingdom with Israel as top dog. That would have been his answer. If you would have interviewed one of the Sadducees, another sect of the Jews, they would have said, I believe Messiah is coming. When my Messiah comes, because the Sadducees were more theologically liberal, they were the materialists, they believed in sort of political compromise, they would have told you their Messiah will be a skilled and powerful politician. Now, if you had a zealot next to you, and if you could have interviewed that sect of Jews known as the zealots, they had a very radical view of the Messiah. He's going to come in and he's going to wipe you guys out and we're going to help them, they thought. These were the radicals. In fact, they, they pictured their Messiah, forgive the analogy, sort of like a motorcycle thug gang member. And they were his gang. And they weren't going to passively sit by until the Messiah comes. They were going to instigate a rebellion now if they could. Now, I'm telling you all that because in any given crowd in the first century, you would have had elements of that belief system, those belief systems present. And no doubt, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, in that crowd, there were people who believed in all those various systems. In their minds, the idea of a meek Messiah wasn't on the radar screen. In fact, they will put him on a cross because he doesn't take over and fit their political agenda, their messianic agenda. Oh, I know, one day they'll say, Hosanna to the Son of David. But three days later, they'll say, crucify him. Get rid of him. We have no room for this kind of meek outlook. The world doesn't respect meekness. You know, nice guys finish last. Okay, with that in mind, just imagine sitting there that day with one of those belief systems, listening to these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This morning, if you're taking notes, I want to give you four things about this. First of all, the explanation of weakness. The explanation of weakness. You know, if we don't explain that word, it'll be very easy to get a false impression Because a lot of us hear the word meekness and we think it's emotional flabbiness. It's gutlessness. As if Jesus said, Oh, blessed are the spineless, for they shall be doormats for God. J. Upton Dixon wrote a book he called Cower Power. 
And in the book, he said he founded a group for submissive people that he called Doormats. Doormats is an acronym for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls If There Are No Objections. Their motto was, the meek will inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody. Their symbol, the yellow traffic light. You know, it's indecisive. Now, Dixon wrote that book as a spoof, but the, the idea is that cower power isn't what we mean by meekness. That's not a good definition or explanation. The Greek term that is used is the term praos. It means gentle, soothing. It described uh, soothing, gentle breeze or soothing ointment to heal a disease. The idea that Jesus is conveying is harnessed power or power brought under control. Harnessed power. You got the power, you got the authority, you got the might, but it's under God's control. And so even the Greeks would describe a stallion that had been broken by using the term praos. It's meek now. Powerful, yes, but under control, certainly. They would also describe an ointment that a doctor would use to take away fever and say, it's praos, meek, mild, gentle, soothing. Uh, They would say words that one speaks to soothe hot emotions would be praos, meek. One of Plato's works, he tells a story about a young child asking the doctor, the attending physician, to treat him with meekness, gentleness. Praos is the term that is used. Aristotle said that meekness is the balancing between two very excessive emotions, uh, excessive anger versus excessive pacifism. It's knowing how to walk that balancing act. In fact, Aristotle described it as a man who is angry on the right occasions with the right people at the right moment for the right length of time. So we might say then, with that background, Jesus is saying to his disciples and the crowd that is eavesdropping, blessed is the one whose power is under control. Blessed is God's gentleman, God's gentlewoman. You see, what good is uncontrolled power? What use is an unbroken colt? Of what value is medicine that is the wrong kind or too strong a dose? It's not going to heal. It's going to harm. A wind out of control will destroy, not help. And so... Two, with our emotional responses with people, what good are they if they're not under God's control? Somebody put it this way, that meekness is letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. It's a nice way of putting it. You just feel so mad, but you're going to let the motor idle. In a school classroom, we group of young folks were asked to write a little essay on the Quakers. One little girl wrote this. I think you'll like it. She said, Quakers are very meek people who never fight and never answer back. My mother is a Quaker. My father is not. (laughs) That's her home life. 
That's the explanation of meekness. Now I want to talk about examples of meekness. And here's why. An explanation doesn't do you much good unless you can see it lived in somebody's life. And there's lots of examples in the Bible that I can think of of people who exhibited that very characteristic of power under control. One of them was Abraham, God's chosen man for God's chosen people, of whom God said, Abraham, the land is yours. All of it, take it, walk the length, the breadth. It's all yours. That was Abraham. But Abraham had a nephew who was sort of a leech. His name was Lot. Lot was sort of a hanger-oner. He followed Uncle Abe from one place to the other. And when they got to that land, I think you remember the story, there was a dispute between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And Abraham, you know how he handled the situation? He said to Lot, look, take whatever you want, and I'll take whatever you don't want. That's meekness. He had the power, the authority, legally, of all that land. God gave it to him. He said, take what you want. I'll take the rest. Somebody else comes to mind. You may have already thought of him. His name is Moses. I bring him up because the Bible brings him up. Numbers chapter 12, Moses is called the most meek man who ever lived on the earth. Now, just a tongue-in-cheek remark about that. Numbers 12 was written by whom? Moses. So it's kind of interesting. And it's still scripture, but it's just sort of a tongue-in-cheek. Oh, I get it. I'm the meekest man who ever lived. (laughs) But he truly was. You say, wait a minute, I remember those times when this guy flew off the handle and got angry. You're right. But Moses never got angry defending himself or holding on to his own rights. He gave it up. Somebody else comes to mind, Joseph. You know Joseph's background. He was sold by his brothers as a slave into Egypt, but you know that he became second in command over the earth sort of the prime minister of Egypt in the world. And there was a famine in the land, and his brothers who sold him into slavery stood before him asking for grain. Here's a guy who had all of the power in the world to execute vengeance on his brothers. He could have thought, I have longed for this day, and you're going to get yours, buddy boy. But what does he do? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many people as it is alive this day. He forgave them. That's meekness, power under control. Somebody else comes to mind, King David. Before he was King David, he was the man God chose to be king over Israel, and Saul was being removed at that time. God rejected Saul, brought David in. When Saul found out that this kid David was chosen by God and was a kid filled with integrity, one day when David was playing harp in Saul's house, Saul picked up a spear and tried to play pin the tail on the musician pinned the spear on the musician. And that spear came flying across the room, aimed at David, and perhaps it stuck in the wall next to David. How did David handle it? He ducked. Good thing to do when you have a spear coming at you. You duck. But now, have you ever thought about this? The spear is on David's side of the room. David's a lot better shot than Saul. He could have picked up that spear and nailed him, killed him. But he ducked and he ran, he fled, went out into the wilderness, is hiding in a cave in En Gedi from Saul. One day Saul and his men, trying to find David, just happened to walk into that same cave. And David is right next to King Saul in a darkened cave in the Middle East. 
And one of David's buddies said, David, this is God. He has delivered your enemy into your hands. Kill him in the name of the Lord. And David says, I can't kill God's anointed. I can't touch God's anointed. So David takes and cuts a little portion of Saul's robe off to prove to Saul that he could have killed him, but his power was under control. And then, get this, David goes out and feels guilty. I cut a little piece of his robe off. He felt so bad over that. Another incident, David was leaving Jerusalem because his son Absalom was kicking him out. He usurped the throne. And as he's going out, David is marching out of the city of Jerusalem. Some guy by the name of Shimei, one of the members of the house of Saul, sees David and decides, great, now he's out as king. I'm going to yell at him and I'm going to mock him. And he threw stones at him. In fact, one of David's men said, move over, Dave. I'm paraphrasing. Move over, Dave. I got my sword. I'm going to cut his head off. David said, no, you won't. Enough blood has been shed this day. You see all these examples of meekness? It's not weakness. It's power under control. Now, there's another example of meekness, and we couldn't really go on unless we covered this one, and it's the Lord Jesus himself. There's no greater example. Did you know that Jesus said, and it was true, of course, he said to his disciples, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Question, how much is all power? It's a lot. It's all power. Everything, ultimate power as God, king of the universe. All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Yet, Jesus said of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I am meek and lowly. Meek, same word, praos, I'm meek and lowly. And you, Jesus said, will find rest for your souls. Now, Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. In fact, Jesus used his power at the appropriate time, in the appropriate moment, at the appropriate people for the appropriate length of time. He fit that whole Aristotle idea. There was a time when Jesus, the meek one, knocked over tables in the temple and whipped people out of the temple. That's incarnate love. That's ultimate meekness in that incident. There was another time in Matthew 23 where eight times he uses the term woe for the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Remember the section where Jesus says, Woe unto you, hypocrites! You whitewashed sepulchers! You are of your father the devil! You ever read that and think, what, did he have a bad day? No, he was speaking truth to people who needed it at that moment. Then there was the time in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is being arrested and the Roman government came and the temple guards and we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And all he said is, I am. And they fell backwards. In that very incident, Peter pulled out a sword. And what did Jesus say? He said, Peter, put your sword away. Now listen to this. Don't you know that I could right now call upon my father and he would send 12 legions or 72,000 angels like that at my disposal? I don't know if you know what that means, but one angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 in an instant. What could 72,000 of them do? 
That'd be a lot of damage. That is ultimate power. And he says, Peter, put away your sword. I want you to remember that this week if you go see The Passion. And I would encourage you to see it. I saw it months ago. Remember as you're seeing that, that Jesus at any moment during that scenario could have put an end to it, could have stopped it, but he didn't. And it ties into his meekness. Question. Here's Jesus, all power, all authority. What do you do with that much power? What did Jesus do while on the earth with ultimate power, ultimate authority? Well, you know what he did sometimes? Sometimes he walked away from the use of that power and authority. Philippians 2 tells us, let this mind be in you and me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he humbled himself and became a man. He emptied himself, the Greek would say. Or how about this one as an example of what I just said? John 13, it's the Last Supper. It says, Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and was going to the Father, and knowing that the Father had given him authority over everything. Here's in Jesus' mind the realization at this moment all power and authority is mine. It says Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, put a towel around his waist, got a basin and some water, and started washing feet. Wait, wait, excuse me. I'm waiting for the Messiah. I want the political guy. I want the powerful guy. He's washing feet with all authority and all power. Reader's Digest had a little story about Chuck Norris. You know who he is. He's that martial arts. He's in all these films. and um, He was down in Texas filming a segment for his show. After one day of filming, he decided to go into a restaurant just for a little downtime, have a a meal, something to drink, sitting in a booth, and some big thug came over and intimated, indicated that Norris was sitting in his booth. Now, you know, Chuck Norris could have just two moves and the guy's on the floor, but, of course, Norris got up, didn't say a word, changed places, moved. A few minutes later, out of the corner of Chuck Norris's eye, he sees the same big bully walking swiftly toward him. And he thinks, oh no, great. Some local hero wants to show up Chuck Norris. The guy stops and goes, you Chuck Norris. Chuck said, yeah. And then the guy said, you could have whipped my hide a few minutes ago, huh? Chuck said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Why didn't you? Chuck said, what would it have proved? He instead extended his hand to him. The man said, no hard feelings. Chuck said, none. And in that article, Chuck Norris said this, I avoided a confrontation and I made a friend. And listen to how he concluded it. I won by losing. I won by losing. Think how many friends Jesus won by losing his life the way he did. That is the ultimate demonstration of meekness. All power, all authority, washing feet, washing sins. Now, that's the explanation and the examples of meekness. The third thing I want to look at, and it's in our text, is the effects of meekness. What are the results 
of a meek person. Read them for yourself. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, those people who fit this description will be happy now and inherit the earth in the kingdom later. So there's really two benefits, two effects, you might say. There's uh, an effect presently and there's an effect eventually. The first one we covered sort of in part the last couple weeks. God calls you blessed, divinely happy. His joy is given to you. You see, folks, joy isn't always getting what you want. Sometimes it's giving up what you don't need. And if you're willing to lose your rights, say, I don't need it. I won't hold on to it. There's real joy in that. God calls you blessed. Now, now, do you remember when we went over the word blessed before, we said it doesn't mean a temporary, subjective, human emotion, but rather an objective, divine proclamation? It doesn't matter if you feel a certain way or what others say or feel about you. It's what God says about you. And what does God say about you? He well, says a lot of things about you. One of the things in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, to give you a future and a hope. God declares these people blessed. The world may say, you're so weak. And God will say, you're blessed. The world might say, you're a bonehead. And God will say, you're blessed from head to toe. By the way, if you want to have a little fun with this, when people ask you this week, hey, how you doing? You can say, I'm blessed. Or better yet, use the old pronunciation, I'm blessed. I dare you. <laughs> your buddy, your friend, your girlfriend, your parents, your kids ask you, hey, how you doing? I'm blessed. Because they're going to ask you, what do you mean? And you'll be able to tell them. It'd be a great way to invite people to the passion to witness to them. Alexander McLaren, who's one of my favorite reads, an old-time Scottish preacher, was candidating for a church, and it didn't go very well. He sort of messed up. He felt badly. In fact, they turned him down. So young Alexander wired his father about this bad ordeal, and he said one word in the wire, rejected. Rejected. What a very hollow-sounding word. I've been rejected. His father got it, and like any good dad would do, wrote him back, wired him back, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. No matter how you feel this morning, if you're a child of God and you've gone through this progression of poor in spirit, mournful over your condition, and now this meekness, God pronounces you blessed. Blessed. Oh, how happy. There's a second, and that's the eventual one. You'll inherit the earth. Kleironomeo is the Greek word that is employed here. It means to receive one's allotted inheritance or rightful portion. It happens to be, I'm convinced, a direct quote out of Psalm 37, verse 11. Listen to it. The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. In other words, you might be deprived now as a child of God on this earth, but there's a time coming when you'll be rewarded, and part of that reward is that you will rule and reign on the earth with Christ in the millennial kingdom. If I'm going to pair that out eschatologically, you'll inherit the earth. 
The righteous will gain heaven and also earth in that kingdom age. Have you ever thought of the dictators who have come and gone of the past? Who have said, I'm going to inherit the earth. I'm going to rule the world. Alexander the Great comes to mind. He thought he would. 31 years of age, he wept on a bed in Babylon. This is what he said. There are no more worlds left to conquer. Poor baby. He had it all. He wanted it all. Think of Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein. A few years ago, I stood in Baghdad, and then I went down to ancient Babylon. And next to ancient Babylon happens to be an even more impressive set of buildings, one of Saddam's palaces. I don't know what it looks like today. I just remember what it looked like then. It was very impressive. This huge huge idea of becoming the potentate of the Middle East, the new kingdom, the new regime. Well, you know the rest of the story. A few months ago, he was found in a dirt hole, and now he's a prisoner of war. Oh, no, the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, there's one more thing I want to cover, and that is the essential need for meekness, and here's why. We've covered a lot of ground so far in just one verse. But this question still is sort of begging in my mind. What's the big deal? Why is this in the top eight of Jesus' list of proclamations of blessed? What's the big deal with meekness? Well, let me tell you that meekness is essential. Number one, it's essential to enter the kingdom. Only the meek inherit the earth because only the meek belong to the king who will one day rule the earth. Jesus said, unless you are converted and become like little children you will not inherit or enter the kingdom of heaven. So you need meekness to enter the kingdom. That's part and parcel of that process, poor in spirit, mourning meekness. Number two, you need meekness to witness to the world. There's an awful lot of talk about the need to mobilize the church and evangelize the world, and I would say a hearty amen to both of those. I'm into that. I'm for that. Let's do that. But let me just say this. Without meekness, you're not going to go very far. Because unless unbelievers know that you're concerned for them, they're not going to listen to the message you have to give them. You see, leading a person to Christ begins by loving that person's soul and showing a great concern for them. You know what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Every apologist has quoted it, loves it, memorized it. Peter says, always be ready to give a defense, a reason for the hope that lies in you with meekness and fear. Give the right answers. Stand up for the faith, but do it with meekness and with fear. So you need meekness to enter the kingdom. You need meekness to witness. Third, you need meekness for the church to function. You want a smooth-running church? It'll never happen unless people are willing to give up their rights and be meek with one another. It'll never happen. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, praotes, or gentleness, meekness is one of them. The fruit of the Spirit. Now, do you see the natural progression here so far? We begin with what? Poor in spirit. That's where we look up to God and we realize God is so awesome. And then it causes me in the second stage to look within at myself. And that's where I mourn. So I look up and go, wow. 
And I look in and go, And then it leads me to the third, meekness. I look outward to others, which is the response to the first two. Let me take a few liberties here, if you don't mind. I'm going to redefine meekness in, in the new skip version. Meekness is defined by taking the word and splitting it in two, and then you'll have it. Me, ech. It works, doesn't it? I look up to God. He's amazing. He's holy. He's powerful. I look inside. I mourn. Me, ech. And it causes me to treat people a little bit different. And that is the reason that even some Christians can be mean-spirited, angry, and cantankerous because they have never made the progression of poverty of spirit, mourning over it, leading to meekness. Now, I want to close with a story that somebody sent to me, a parent, and the parent's experience. Last week, writes this parent, last week I took my children to a restaurant. My six-year-old son asked if he could say grace. As we bowed our heads, he said, God is good, God is great, thank you for the food, and I would thank you even more if mom gets us ice cream for dessert. (laughs) And liberty and justice for all, amen. (laughs) Along with the laughter from the other customers nearby, I heard a woman remark, that's what's wrong with this country. Kids today don't even know how to pray asking God for ice cream. Why, I never. Hearing this, my son burst into tears and asked me, Did I do it wrong? Is God mad at me? As I held him, I assured him he had done a terrific job and God was certainly not mad at him. Then an elderly gentleman approached the table. He winked at my son and he said, I happen to know that God thought that was a great prayer. Really? My son asked. Cross my heart, said the stranger. Then in a theatrical whisper, he added, indicating the woman whose remark started the whole thing, too bad she never asked God for ice cream. (laughs) A little ice cream is good for the soul sometimes. Naturally, I bought my kids ice cream at the end of the meal. My son stared at his for a moment, then did something I will remember for the rest of my life. He picked up his Sunday, and without a word, he walked over and placed it in front of the woman. And with a big smile, he told her, Here, this is for you. Ice cream is good for the soul sometimes, and my soul is good already. Isn't that great? Some of us need some ice cream. (laughs) Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look up to you, we can never look up to you without the the obvious being known. We, We say it so often, I think we even forget its reality. You are truly a holy, righteous God, separate from all your creation in your magnificence, in your sovereignty. The only response in dealing with you can be that of abject poverty of spirit and resultant in true worship and humility. A mourning over our condition which produces me, eh, a meekness, so that our dealings with others could only be called power in control. May it be your control, Father. Would you control our lives 
this week as we learn to apply these truths. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Amen.